Okay, Ecclesiastes chapter 8 is where we'll be today. We started it last week, um, and last week we were considering the opening phrase from Solomon, who is, who is like a wise man? Who is like a wise man? And Solomon tells us in that, uh, that verse that a man's wisdom makes his face shine, that the sternness in his face is, is changed. And we talked about a shining face in Scripture in the Old Testament generally speaks of favor, and uh, a wise man is, is visibly gracious in his demeanor. Uh, he's, he's, his, his gentleness is seen in his face. Um, and a gracious, gentle countenance is the countenance of the wise person. Um, and we talked about why that can be true. Uh, one, we talked about the joy of the Lord being one of that, uh, part of that, right? That we have the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Um, that certainly having that joy in the Lord should change our countenance. But also because we have that, um, our, our hearts should not be overly burdened and uh, manipulated by the world affairs and um, you know, the, the circumstances of our life because we recognize that God is uh, in control. And so as we look at this countenance of the, the wise person, Solomon was specifically concerned with the countenance of a wise person as seen in how we live before earthly rulers, how we respond to earthly authority. Um, and just to recap, uh, chapters, well, chapter 8, verses 1 through 9 were really about how do we live before the king? How, we, how do we live before the king? Solomon tells us in verse 2, he says, keep the king's commandment for the sake of your oath to God. And so we're commanded to obey rulers, obey authorities, and Solomon gives us a few reasons as to why that is the case. And the first reason, he says, is because of our oath to God. I don't have time to go through the entire meaning of that. You'll have to listen to last week's online. But any time an oath is made between a man and some authority on earth, it is seen as an oath between man and God. But specifically, specifically when it pertains to human uh, rulers, earthly authorities because of Romans 13. And I just wanted to remind you of it today. In Romans chapter 13, we looked at this last week, says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that, are, that do exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority, resists the ordinance of, of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. So God is the one who has appointed the authorities of the, the world um, and so we're called to obey the authorities because that was God's choice. And if you have a problem with that person, well, you really have a problem with God. In a way, we're saying, how could you have chosen this person, God? Certainly, I know better than you. But God is the one who's done that for his own purposes. Another reason that we're given to obey the king is because they have power. Um, and they have power that really demands our respect. They have power just in their words, don't, don't they? Um, and they can wield that power and so if we are obedient to the uh, kingdoms of this world, then we'll keep ourselves from harm. That was another reason he talked about uh, there. Um, when we look further on in Romans uh, 13, if you were to read through it today, you'd find uh, Solomon, uh, uh, Paul talks about the governments bearing the sword, right? You should fear them because they don't, they don't carry the sword for, for nothing, right? They, they're, they're given the sword to, to exercise the power of the sword. They are a restraining force against uh, evil and wickedness. And, and so we're called to just obey them and trust God with them. But 
But Solomon did talk about the wise person discerning both time and judgment, and he gave us a balance. On the one hand, obedience keeps us out of harm's way, but on the other hand, we need to discern time and judgment. There, under a king's rule, we will find ourselves in different situations, and they will require different courses of action. And we've got to recognize the proper time, the proper procedure to take for that time. So we need to exercise time and judgment. And he concluded in verse 9 that there is a time in which one man rules over another to his own hurt, uh, and really to the hurt of those over whom he rules. And Solomon is a good example of that because Solomon um, gave in to temptation. He had the opportunity to sin because of his love for many foreign women. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And so those foreign women led his heart away from God. And because his heart was led away from God, God took away the kingdom from Solomon and it was divided and it never regained its former uh, luster. It never regained its prominence and prosperity that it enjoyed under Solomon. And so while we need to be subject to authorities and we need to exercise discretion and use wisdom in dealing with their rule, uh, earthly rulers can abuse their power to their own harm and to yours and mine as, as well. And so we move into this section today. Solomon really wants to address that aspect. What about those rulers? What about the ones that rule wickedly? Uh, what happens to them? Uh, what do we do about them? How do we respond to those people? And that's what we'll look at today. So we'll pick up in verse 10 and carry it on to the end of the chapter to verse 17. Look at verse 10 of chapter 8. Then I saw the wicked buried who had come and gone from the place of holiness, and they were forgotten in the city where they had so done. This also is vanity, because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily. Therefore, the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and his days are prolonged, yet I surely know that it will be well with those who fear God, who fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, nor will he prolong his days, which are as a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity which occurs on earth that there are just men to whom it happens according to the work of the wicked. Again, there are wicked men to whom it happens according to the work of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. So I commended enjoyment because a man has nothing better under the sun than to eat, drink, and be merry. For this will remain with him in his labor all the days of his life, which God gives him under the sun." When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, even though one sees no sleep day or night, then I saw all the work of God, that a man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. For though a man labors to discover it, yet he will not find it. Moreover, though a wise man attempts to know it, he will not be able to find it. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word today. And uh, Lord, we just recognized uh, that we need your Holy Spirit. We need uh, illumination of truth to us today, Lord. And we just pray that you would be with us and guide us into truth. Lord, we do want to understand uh, how you uh, work and interact with the authorities of this uh, world to whom we are subject. Lord, we want to know how to live wisely and well before them and before you. And so, God, we just um, we need your help. And we need your truth. And so, Lord, open up our hearts for what you want to show us today for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.
Well, Solomon's going to begin here with really a question, the question of injustice, um, speaking about these, these wicked rulers. Remember, it's in the context of the rulers because we just, I divided this chapter in, in, in half. He says, then I saw the wicked buried who had come and gone from the place of holiness. The wicked are buried who had come from the place of holiness. What is, what is meant here? Well, there is, I think, a sense in which the place of holiness is the place which ought to be occupied by the holy. It isn't always occupied by the holy. It's the place of holiness, but sometimes it's occupied by the wicked. Certainly that is true of those in authority in churches. There are churches whose leaders are not holy, right? They are masquerading as such, but they are not holy. They are wolves. There are authorities appointed by God in this world who are in the place of holiness in that sense because they are God's ministers and they're ordained by him, but they are not acting as if they are ministers of God. They act wickedly. And we can see that just in nation after nation of this world. And so the wicked sometimes rule in the place where holiness ought to rule. There's no better example than you just look at the Old Testament history of the kings of Israel, right? When you see the kingdom divided from, um, from Solomon, or sorry, not Solomon, but um, Jeroboam after Solomon to Hosea, right? All of those kings were, were evil. From the divided kingdom to the Assyrian captivity, all of them, the only one that gave us a little bit of hope, that showed a little bit of promise was Jehu. And he starts out pretty good. But 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 31, gives us this um, conclusion about Jehu. But Jehu took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord God of Israel with all his heart. For he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, who made Israel sin. So he, was, he, he looked good for a bit, but in the end, he still sinned as Jeroboam did in the beginning. And so in the end, all the kings of Israel were wicked. We had some good Judean kings. I mentioned one today earlier, Hezekiah, right? Josiah, Asa, there's a few of them that are good, but there are many that were wicked as well. These are people who are supposed to be reigning over God's chosen people, appointed by God in the place of holiness. If you look back at verse 8 from last week, Solomon said, wickedness will not deliver those who are given to it. And in verse 9, he said that man's wickedness, especially when in the abuse of, of power, can lead to his own hurt. Well, Jehu was that kind of man. And, and so were the other kings of Israel. And not only do they, they rule there in that place of holiness, but they come and they go from the place of holiness. They come and they go. What is meant by that? They come and go from the place of, of holiness. Well, if, if Solomon, I think, is spe- a couple of things. If he's speaking here specifically of those who attended, say, uh, the tabernacle, went to the temple or the sanctuary, they participated in worship wherever they were because they had different places in the divided kingdom there later on, but Solomon's uh, is not divided here. But if he's talking about people who went and worshiped, their devotion to God is nothing more than a a pious cloak, right? It's a garment to cover uh, their real unrighteousness. Um, And so they come and they go from these places of of power. They pretend to have this power, even ordained by God, some of them, right? They would even confess that and yet abuse that power. They come and they go. And he says, they were then forgotten in the city where they had so done. Forgotten. 
Interesting, if you read, you might even have a little footnote next to forgotten. Some Hebrew manuscripts actually have the word praised there. You might see it in yours there. So are they forgotten or are they praised? Uh, Which is it? Because it seems like the opposite thing. Well, his conclusion either way is vanity. Did you notice that in verse 10? This also is vanity. It's, It's meaningless. Either view will lead you to that conclusion. If a wicked leader dies, he's buried, he's, he's soon forgotten in the city in which he ruled wickedly, then his rule was meaningless, was it not? Right? They, don't, they don't even remember his deeds. Uh, it's, it's vanity. If that wicked leader is praised after his death in the city where he ruled wickedly, well, that's injustice. And that's also vanity. It's also meaningless. Psalm 37 35 to 36 says, I have seen the wicked in great power and spreading himself like a native green tree. Yet he passed away and behold, he was no more. Indeed, I sought him, but he could not be found. I don't think we need to worry too much about whether it's forgotten or praised. Uh, The point is these men ruled wickedly, appointed by God, abused their power, and it ends in vanity. It's meaningless. True meaning in the authority and position of power comes when you rule in the manner in which God has appointed you. That is what God is looking for. And verse 11, he goes on and says, because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily. Therefore, the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Because the king was allowed to to reign in their wickedness or the ruler or whoever they, they are with seemingly little retribution, um, because people interpret that as interpret God's inactivity as he's indifferent or he's, he's impotent, he can't do anything about it, um, then the heart of the sons of men is fully set in themselves to do evil. The blasphemer, right, continues to blaspheme, right? Because his tongue isn't sealed from blasphemy the moment blasphemy leaves his lips. The thief continues to steal because he isn't apprehended the moment he steals, Or the murderer isn't struck down the minute they take a life. And tyrants are not immediately deposed the minute they fail to give God the glory. Now, we do have some amazing exceptions in Scripture. We do have some examples. And one such one is found in Acts chapter 12, verse 21. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. And the people kept shouting, the voice of a God, not of a man. Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God and he was eaten by worms and died. (laughs) Admittedly, there may be those kinds of people in authority today. We secretly wish the angel of the Lord would strike them down and they would be eaten by worms and die, right? We, we, would, we would wish that because they're not giving glory to God. They set themselves up as gods. We have those kinds of people in authority today, do we not? There's no difference. But I, what I might point out is this is a rarity. You don't see this happening consistently all through Scripture. Now, if we did, <laughs> I think rulers would maybe take that position with a little bit more, you know, soberly, like, I better be careful how I do this. Because every single time, right, God has smashed them down. No, it's a rarity. Generally, man sees no recourse for his sin, and so he just continues to sin. And he sins more brazenly so, right? 
And that is the idea here. Because the sentence against an evil work isn't executed speedily, right? The heart of men, they set themselves um, to do evil. Further to that, look at verse 12. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and his days are prolonged. So the idea is this, he will blaspheme over and over again. He'll steal over and over again. The tyrant will oppress daily. And it seems as if their days are prolonged. Here's the question. Are they? Are the, the days prolonged of the wicked? Are the days prolonged for us? Well, remember, this is from Solomon's perspective. And Solomon's perspective predominantly has been under the sun. I'm going to bring us back to that. Remember the view under the sun, right? He's been looking uh, horizontally much of the time. And then, and then we have these wonderful glimpses where he all of, all of a sudden looks vertically. We're, we've been back to this horizontal. We've been looking at the powers of the world. And from man's perspective, as we look at these things taking place, particularly while, while enduring oppression at the hands of tyrannical re- leaders, it seems as if the days of the wicked are prolonged. But the truth is this. Their days are numbered just like yours are, just like mine are. All of our days are numbered. Psalm 39.4, David says, Lord, make me to know my end and what is the measure of my days that I may know how frail I am. David wants to say, I, 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 let me understand this, that I have a, a certain number of days. I, I'm just, I'm a frail being. And who Who gives us the number? Well, God does that. God determines it. And there's no one here that can say, here's your number, right? I'm actually thankful God doesn't dish out those numbers when we're born, right? You don't get a tattoo on your ankle like, oh, 39. Oh, man, I only got 39 years. We don't know the number of our days. Here's a great example. You might remember this example. Remember uh, Belshazzar from the book of Daniel? Well, Belshazzar is a great example, right? He's got the Medes and Persians camped outside the walls, and he's living it up inside. He's having a party. He's got all the nobles around, and they're eating and drinking from the very vessels of gold and silver that came from the temple. That's how brazen he is. Like, I don't care about armies that are outside. In fact, bring those temple goblets. Let's drink wine out of those things. Do you guys remember what happens in that story? Kind of a creepy, almost like a horror movie, really. Because they're drinking wine, what happens? Fingers appear out of nowhere and begin writing on the wall. I didn't make that up. Read the book of Daniel. It's in there, right? And they begin writing on the wall, and he becomes absolutely terrified. He finds out that there is a guy who's good at interpretation. It's Daniel. Daniel's called in to read the words, mene, mene, tekel, uparsin, right? And he says, this is the interpretation of each word, mene. God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Your days are numbered. Your days are numbered. And what happened that very night? The Medes and Persians conquered. The very night. His days were numbered. I am certain Daniel was in captivity all his life. And just about every king thought they were the last one, right? And their days were, were, you know, going to go on forever. But all of their days were numbered. And Daniel just keeps living past those rulers. And he keeps submitting to their reign. How long did Daniel have to wait to see God judge rulers? Well, there was, a, there was an opportunity right there, right? Maybe Daniel, you know, hopped and skipped after that. I don't know. But then he's under the new rule of the Medes and Persians. 
But here's the point, particularly with what we looked at last week. The same way in which we must obey our earthly kings um, and trust God in their reigns, we must trust God with his judgment over their reigns. Does that make sense? We trust them in their reigns. We obey them. We're called to obey them. But we got to trust God to be the judge over them. We're not. And we like to put ourselves in that position, but we're not. We want vengeance. We want God to defend us. We want to see it happen. But that is not the answer. And Solomon gives us the answer here, and it's not the answer you're looking for. (laughs) The answer is faith. That's the answer. The answer is faith. Look at verse 12. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and his days are prolonged, yet I surely know that it will be well with those who fear God, who fear before him. I want to remind you how Solomon has been describing things thus far. He's been saying words like, I have seen, uh, or I saw, right? Because he's been doing empirical evidence. He's been looking at things. He's been experimenting. He says, this is what I saw. This is what I saw. This is the conclusion from that experiment. This is the first time he doesn't say that. What does he say? I surely know. I didn't see it happen. I just know. Solomon is saying, I I can't show it to you. It's not something you're going to see necessarily. You're just going to have to trust me. In fact, you're just going to have to trust God. I surely know. The injustices of life, we can see those. We can see them. They they are things that we can uh, observe. And it is admittedly difficult to understand how God is good and he is just, and yet he is seemingly inactive against evil sometimes, right? We can see all that by observation as well. What we can't see by observation must be, be received by faith. And this is what it is. It will be well with those who fear God. It will be well with those who fear God. Where does our response to the injustices of rulers begin? Fear of God. That's where it begins. And we talk about fear of God all the time. We mention it all the time. It comes up in verses all the time. But what are we really talking about when we say fear of God? I want to take a little bit of time to flesh that out a bit. Um, I think we must get this word into our minds. Maybe this word is an old-fashioned word, awe. A-W-E, awe. The idea of splendor, majesty, glory, power, justice, righteousness, Holiness, all of those things, those attributes of God are meant to instill in us a sense of awe. Job, in chapter 37, verses 22 to 24, lists a bunch of those. He comes from the north as golden splendor. With God is awesome majesty. As for the Almighty, we cannot find him. He is excellent in power, in judgment, and abundant justice. He does not oppress, oppress. Therefore, men fear him. Why do men fear him? Because they notice those attributes of God. Wow, he is holy, he's powerful, he's just, he's all of those things. This awe should create something in us, and this is a commentator used this phrase, and I'm just going to use it today because I love it. Holy caution. Holy caution. I, I, I like that. That we should be exercising caution in our walk, in our talk, in our thoughts, because of our knowledge of the holy. Does that make sense? Um, 
how about this? How did Jesus describe fearing God? Because Jesus talked about it as well. Great example in Luke chapter 12, verses 4 to 5. He says this, And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. And after that, have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after he has killed has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. I think people take this passage the wrong way. This is not a scare tactic. This is not what some people, I think, do this the wrong way, say, turn or burn. You've probably heard that, right? right? You're a sinner. You're, you're going to hell. What is the context for what Jesus is talking about? Who are people fearing? Men, right? You're fearing men. And he says, listen, men can only operate so far. Their power is limited. They can only go to this point. And what is that point? They can only kill you. That's as far, that's as, far as their power reaches. Once that has happened, there's nothing more they can do. It's limited power. It seems like great power, and it is, and we're to respect the power of rulers. They carry the sword, but it's not actually that great. Why? Because God's power extends beyond the grave. Do you see what he's saying? He's not saying, oh yeah, you got to turn or burn. You got to be scared of hell, scared of hell. He's not saying that. He's saying, stop fearing those whom you should not fear in that way. Their power is limited. Instead, if you're going to fear somebody, if you're going to fear someone, fear God, because his power extends further. It's a fear of the only righteous authority. We're not guaranteed to have righteous authority under us. So yes, we are to obey our earthly rulers, and yes, we fear those who carry the power of the sword, but God has power beyond the grave, and ultimately, we fear God and not men. Remember, John and James, they they were asked to stop preaching, right? You got to stop preaching. They say, well, you know, we got to fear man or God here. Which is the choice? Hmm, What should we do? Well, we're going to fear God because he's called us to do this, Right? The, the decision for us is very, very simple. When the rulers, the governments of this world call us to do something that God has forbidden or prevent us from doing something God has commanded, we've got to draw the line there. But we can't make other lines. Does that make sense? It's pretty clear. Uh, we can't start to draw our own little lines and say, well, but I prefer to have this, right? And I, I prefer to have this, right? Uh, I brought up last week the whole smacking ban right? We're going to have to exercise time and judgment, right? We're going to have to look at those kind of things and go, well, how will we operate under the authority uh, that God has placed here in that uh, particular situation? It's going to take discretion. It's going to take wisdom. But when it comes to the, the absolute commands of God, and those, that's where we draw the line. And but So ultimately, what we're saying is our fear should be of, of God, that, and it's not a, a negative thing. It's a great thing for a believer. Those who have been in the parenting course will know I've said this phrase, and I know it's a shocking phrase, but I say it, I say, I want your kids to fear you. I do that, I say that in a way because I, I want to shock you. I want to shock you. What do you mean? You want, I don't want my kids to be afraid of me. That's not what I'm saying. In fact, last week, what did I say about respect? Your kids should respect you, right? Because as God has given authority to the rulers of this earth, you are one of those authorities in the lives of your kids, Right? You are a minister of God. And as we are to fear God, your parents should have, your, your, your kids should have the same kind of fear for you. Meaning, they understand there's consequences for their actions. And your yes is yes, and your no is no. 
just as that relationship we have with God. We understand when he says, no, don't do this, or there's consequences, we, we, we obey because we know God is going to, and he's going to punch me in the nose if I, if I don't do this, right? It, that's the idea with, with, with our parenting, that we've got to have the, the proper fear in terms of they've got to get to that place of respect the, respect the authority that God has given me. That's the fear we have for God, and it's a great thing. Proper fear of God, particularly in the face of in, injustice, that's what enables us to trust him. If you don't really fear him, well, can you really trust him? Is he really, really going to come through for you? Solomon's answer to the question requires faith. If we fear God, we must trust that two things are true, regardless of what we see by observation. Here's the two things. Both are mentioned here. First thing, verse 12, right? Yet I surely know that it will be well with those who fear God. The first thing is, you're going to be okay. It'll be well with you. You've got to trust that. I can't prove it by empirical evidence. I can't say, oh, just look at this example, because that's not every example. You have to trust that. What do I mean by that? Psalm 66, 16. Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will declare what he has done for my soul. Let that one sink in for a second. Everyone who has a fear of God, all right, everyone who has a fear of God, come in here. I'm going to declare something to you. Here's where my hope is. Let me tell you what he's done for my soul, not for my life, not how he protected me from this circumstance, not how he delivered me from this, what he did for my soul. That is the ultimate example of how we know it will be okay. Because ultimately, like I said, the powers of this world, they're limited. There's only so far they can go, and they can't go any further. And ultimately, the question is, where is your soul going to go? Who's caring for that? Let me take you to Revelation chapter 19, if you will. Revelation chapter 19, keep your finger in Ecclesiastes. We'll, we'll come back to that in just a minute. Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 5. says this, then a voice came from the throne saying, praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thunderings saying, alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. Great passage. You've heard, no doubt, of the marriage supper of, of the Lamb. Uh, we're, we're going to be at that marriage supper if you're one of those who fear Him. Praise you, His servants, and those who fear Him. Those are the ones that are in the company of Almighty God at the marriage supper of the Lamb at the end of days. That is ultimately what we look toward. Who has cared for your soul? Will you be there? Will you be there? Solomon says, it'll be well with those who fear God. I can't prove it, because guess, guess why? He, he can't take you into the afterlife, right? He can't take you beyond and say, let me give you a sneak, sneak peek here. You're just going to have to take that on faith. Ultimately, those who fear God will be 
with him. Scripture is very clear about that. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord for believers. Paul was confident about that. But how about the wicked? Well, look at verse 13. But it will not be well with the wicked, nor will he prolong his days which are as a shadow, because he does not fear before God. So the first thing is you have to trust by faith that you're going to be okay. But the second thing is, is the wicked will not be okay. It won't be well with the wicked, he says. And it seems like there's a contradictory statement in there because it talks about his days, nor will he prolong his days, where just a few verses prior it said it seems like his days are prolonged. No, it's not a, it's not a contradictory statement. Remember, Solomon was looking at things under the sun, but now, since we entered verse 12, we're looking at things with the vertical perspective. Did you notice God entered the picture? God in verse 12, God in verse 13, God in verse 15, God in verse 17. God's in the picture. We're looking this way now. And from God's perspective, the day of death, that is not prolonged for the wicked. Their days are as a shadow. Job 14.2 says, He comes forth like a flower and fades away. He flees like a shadow and does not continue. It's a fleeting thing, their life is. Psalm 102.11, another one. My days are like a shadow that lengthens, and I wither away like grass. The lengthening of your shadow is actually the shortening of your day, isn't it? Right? The sun is going down. Their days are shortening. It won't be well uh, with the wicked. And the reason is this, because none of our days are prolonged. All of our days are numbered. I started with that. We all have our days numbered. Take you to Psalm chapter 49. If you're back in Ecclesiastes, just make a short left-hand turn to Psalm 49. This is a great passage because in it we see both sides. We see those who uh, fear God and we see those who do not. And we see the outcome of both in Psalm 49. I'm going to read a good portion of it so you can see both sides. Beginning in verse 1. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world. So this is for everyone, both low and high, rich and poor, together. My mouth shall speak wisdom and the meditation of my heart shall give understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will disclose my dark saying on the harp. Why should I fear in the days of evil when the iniquity at my heels surrounds me? Those who trust in their wealth and boast in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their souls is costly and it shall cease forever that he should continue to live eternally and not see the pit. For he sees wise men die, likewise the fool and the senseless per- person perish and leave their wealth to others. Their inner thought is that their houses will last forever, their dwelling places to all generations. They call their lands after their own names. Nevertheless, man, though in honor, does not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the way of those who are foolish and of their posterity who approve their sayings. Like sheep, they are laid in the grave. Death shall feed on them. The upright shall have dominion over them in the morning, and their beauty shall be consumed in the grave far from their dwelling. But 
God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. This is the person who asked that question of verse 5. Why should I fear in the days of evil? I shouldn't fear because he's going to receive me. That is the perspective of the believer. Yeah, there's difficult things going on. I have nothing to fear. In the end, he's going to receive me, but it's not going to be that way for the wicked, for those who do not fear. Death comes their way. Remember last week, we even looked at that, right? They think they can avoid death. Wickedness will not deliver them. They mock at the thought of the afterlife or eternity or where they're going to spend it. The truth is death will come and they won't be able to avoid it. Look at verse 14. He sort of restates the problem. There is a vanity which occurs on earth that there are just men to whom it happens according to the work of the wicked. And again, there are wicked men to whom it happens according to the work of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. Uh, He mentioned this problem back in chapter 7, verse uh, 15. You can look at it there. Um, The idea of, uh, you know, what should happen to the wicked happens to the righteous and vice versa. So what about this injustice? That seems pretty unfair. What's what's God doing about, about those things? Well, let me remind you of Romans 12, 19. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Right, that is in the court of the Lord. We're not the executors of vengeance unless Batman happens to be in the room. Then carry on. We, we leave that to the proper authority, and the proper authority is God. He's ultimately going to be the one that will take care of the, the situation there. We have way too many examples to even go through um, today to even look at. But Daniel was already mentioned as uh, one of them. You can certainly look at the life of Joseph as well to see that ultimately, you know, God is going to be the one that's going to, to judge. Now, you might look at this and go, well, that's great. Uh, but how does that really practically help me here and now? How, how am I really supposed to, to live this life? Well, he, he recalls the solution he's already given, Solomon does here, in verse uh, 15. And it is a practical, a practical solution. Verse 15 says, So I commended enjoyment, because a man is nothing better under the sun than to eat, drink, and be merry. For this will remain with him in his labor all the days of his life, which God gives him under the sun. Uh, this is the fourth time he's used that phrase, nothing is better. There's nothing better than you do this. Um, this conclusion has been repeated as your life under the sun. Did you notice he says it there twice? Under the sun. How do you live this life down here then? Well, the solution that's been offered here, it's a practical one. What does he commend here? Enjoyment. What does he commend here? Contentment. Be content with what God's given you. Enjoy what God's given you. In fact, he says, this will remain. That phrase, this will remain, is the word lava. Lava, and it means to be joined to. To be joined to. Um, This will uh, be joined to you. This is your close companion here on earth. Your encouragement here on earth amid daily life. Again, activity under the sun. Enjoy what God's given you. Be content with what God has given you. We're not ignoring the vertical, but Solomon is once again looking at the horizontal. As you live in this life, we just, we just be content with what he's given us. And this perspective will help us in life. But granted, it doesn't answer 
the ultimate puzzle of life, does it? It doesn't give us all the answers we're hoping that we would get. And Solomon ends with pointing that out. Yeah, you're right. You're not going to figure it all out. In verse 16, he says, When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, even though one sees no sleep day or night, then I saw all the work of God that a man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. For though a man labors to discover it, yet he will not find it. Moreover, though a wise man attempts to know it, he will not be able to find it. What is Solomon saying here? Well, he's, he's done this whole test. It's been to, to really use his wisdom, to use his knowledge, to see if he could figure all this stuff out on earth. Even losing sleep over it, right? No sleep day or night. That's his quest. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to discover the meaning of, of life here. And he keeps coming back to the same conclusion. Well, I guess I'm just supposed to enjoy it and be content with what God has given me. But you look at verse 17, I saw all the work of God that a man cannot find out the work that is done of the Son, the work of God. The providential work of God is what he's referring to. We looked at that a couple weeks back when we talked about God's providence. We talked about it this week with the men on um, Thursday night, God's sovereignty being the same idea. That when we try to understand the sovereign providential purposes of God, we really try to make it all fit into our nice little box. You can't. Because there just isn't a box big enough. You, you just won't be able to figure it out. Because you're trying to put the divine mind of God into a box. And it just can't be done. We just have to trust it. He says, I cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. For though a man labors to discover it, he won't find it. Though a wise man attempts to know it, he won't find it. You're good at laboring and doing all the research to find it, you're not going to find it. If you're a wise man like Solomon, you're not going to find it. The idea is this. Don't waste your time trying to figure the details of life which lie with God. That's God's jurisdiction. Living well before God, that's our path. And it must not be sacrificed in pursuit of truth that we really can't comprehend. Isaiah 55, 9 says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts than your thoughts which means your thoughts won't reach his. Your ways won't reach his. They're just higher than yours. And you have to be okay with that. And we will look at this idea of justice and the rulers of this earth. In the courtroom of God, justice will always prevail. No, I can't prove that. I can't take you to that courtroom. You just must trust that. We don't need to concern ourselves with whether or not it's being served because God is always just. He's always good. He's always right. So what should we concern ourselves with? Great verse I love to go to is Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. The law is being given to the second generation going into the promised land. And they've been given the law, they've been given the words and, and all those things they must obey. But they just want to know all the other things. They want to know all the details in the sovereign plan of God. And he's like, da, 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 da. the secret things belong to God. I've already given you all you need. It's been revealed. And what is it? Do all the words of this law. Yeah, yeah, I got the law, but 
what about this? Uh, what about that? And we do that too. We get sidetracked with all these different, you know, different, you know, ideas, secret things that maybe God is planning and doing. That's fine if that's your hobby, right? But those belong to God. What he really wants us to do is to follow what has been revealed in Scripture, what's clearly revealed. Follow that. Do that, and you'll be okay. I love um, this little devotional that um, has been on the PrayerMate app that we have and some of the men have. Um, One of the things you can subscribe to is a, a John Piper sort of devotional that he does daily. This one was... March 1st. That's today. This one is today. I read it this morning and went, there's the conclusion right here. Here it is. So this is, this is coming from the divine. God has done this today for you. Last week, I brought up John chapter 19 and that courtroom scene between Jesus and Pilate. Do you remember that? Well, today, John Piper brings up the same scene and he ties it so beautifully to this theme here. And I just want you to listen to this. This is from John 19, 9 through 11. He, Pilate, entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Remember bringing that up last week? So listen to what John Piper says about it. Pilate's authority to crucify Jesus did not intimidate Jesus. Why not? Good question. Not because Pilate was lying. Not because he didn't have authority to crucify Jesus. He did. Rather, this authority did not intimidate Jesus because it was derivative. Jesus said it was given to you from above, which means it really is authoritative, not less, but more so. So how is this not intimidating? Pilate not only has authority to kill Jesus, but he has God-given authority to kill him? Right? That seems more intimidating. This does not intimidate Jesus because Pilate's authority over Jesus is subordinate to God's authority over Pilate. Jesus gets his comfort at this moment, not because Pilate's will is powerless, but because Pilate's will is guided. Not because Jesus isn't in the hands of Pilate's fear, but because Pilate is in the hands of Jesus' Father, which means that our comfort comes not from the powerlessness of our enemies, but from our Father's sovereign rule over their power. That is beautiful. That is the idea. Your comfort today comes from your Father's sovereign rule over the powers of this earth. And you are simply called to fear God and trust in Him. And if you do, it will be well with you and it won't be with the wicked. Trust, trust God with that. I don't know how that will happen. I, I, you may, may not see it happen, but you must trust God with that. So when you look at this chapter as a, as a whole, we have an interesting world. It is full of unknown things. Um, nations topple and tumble left and right all the time. Things are always in, in motion with our, our governments. And there's a lot of uncertainty and things can easily get out of hand, can't they? But living well before God, living well before the authorities of this earth, that will keep you in the good hands of God. Things get out of hand, just run to the hands of God. He's the one that's sovereignly in control of the rulers of this earth. We need not fear them. We must just fear God. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word today and for Solomon's wisdom in writing these 
words down from his own experience, Lord, using his own wisdom to try to figure out how all these things work out in the courtroom of God and ultimately just having to rely on faith. It's an answer of faith. It's the things that are unseen that we must trust you with. Or we don't always see justice prevail and may never see it in our lifetime. But we do know this, that you are a just God and that you are good and that justice will prevail. And we need simply to trust you. Lord, thank you for the reminder today and from last week as well that the authorities of this world are appointed by you and they're under your authority. We're simply called to obey them and to trust in you. And God, I just pray that as our political climate continues to, Lord, just spiral, Lord, all over the place, it just seems so unstable that we would remain stable knowing that you are in control. God, thank you for the reminder today. I pray that we'd be blessed and comforted with these words going forward this week and that you would be glorified. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.